Welcome to the Mountain and Valley Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Micah Horvath. This podcast exists to share the stories of everyday people, to discuss the difficult moments in life, the amazing triumphant times, and the journey in between. We all have a story to tell, and we hope this podcast helps you in telling your own. We want to give a small disclaimer before you begin this episode. Some of the conversation in this episode may not be suitable for some of our younger listeners. So to any parents listening, we would ask that you listen to this prior to your kids. In this episode, we have our very own Kip Wilkinson. Kip shares a story of life on the run, dealing with depression, the unbelievable peace that only Christ brings, and what life and ministry looks like. But I'll let him tell you the story. My family lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee until I was about five. Uh, I have a few memory of, memories of those times, uh, good memories of bike rides, playing with our dogs, and building a snowman with my dad. Um, you know, I only mention those uh, because they stand in stark contrast to the next 10 years of my life. Uh, around when I turned five, my parents decided to uproot and move to a small town called Tracy City. Literally the traditional small American town in the mountains, one main road, very few stores to buy supplies, everyone knows everyone on a first name basis. Uh, my parents bought a building in town and opened a tack and feed store that doubled as an exotic pet store. A few miles outside of town we had several acres of property um, that we built a cabin on, and I mean a legit log cabin with no insulation. Uh, we actually had to use kerosene heaters in the winter. Um, it wasn't one of those fancy cabins in Gatlinburg. Uh, we fenced in the entire property and built a couple of barns and shelters. Um, over the, over the years, our family accrued a lot, and I mean a lot of different animals and built something of a ranch or a pet farm. Uh, we had horses, goats, rabbits, chickens, a pig once, pigeons, domesticated deer. Yes, that's for real. And my mom started raising slash breeding Shelties, so there was always a herd of dogs running around. Uh, suffice it to say, I grew up with a lot of pets between the farm and the pet store. Uh, I've challenged people before to list off an animal that can be kept as a pet, and as far as I can recall, no one has come up with something that we didn't own. Um, like seriously, we had a lionfish and a chinchilla. I owned a parrot until high school. Um, anyway, anyway, I'm move on. I could talk about animals for a while. Uh, we were deep in the woods, so my sister and I ended up exploring the woods with one of our cousins all the time and riding bikes through all these trails we blazed. Uh, I think even to this day, if you threw me into those trees, I could still easily find my way around. And all that sounds very idyllic, um, and in a lot of ways it was. Uh, not a lot of people get to grow up in a situation like that, especially these days. And I learned a lot about nature and picked up a lot of survival skills growing up on a farm and in the woods that have remained useful to this day. Um, but I say all that just to give you an idea of the setting and where we were. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about my family. I have a little sister named Kelsey. My dad was an army vet. He fought in Desert Storm, uh, something we were all really proud of. And he's a hard worker. Um, but he had a job an hour away from where we lived, so he was gone a lot. Uh, during the week, it seemed like we didn't see him very often, uh, just because he worked long shifts at a food line. Uh, Mom operated the pet store and looked after us kids. Um, also, for a few years, our cousin came and lived with us, so his pictures falls into this sometimes. Uh, for a while, everything was great. Uh, things didn't start to change until I was about eight or nine. Uh, the pet store was actually doing really well and business was picking up, so my parents decided to hire some help running things. I helped as much as I could around the store, cleaned animal cages, swept floors, I even helped load feed bags for customers, which was no easy feat because if you don't know, feed bags weigh about 50 pounds, and I was eight, so <laughs> I was a ripped eight-year-old. Um, <laughs> ultimately... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Ultimately, uh, two guys ended up working with us for a while. One was a reptile specialist who helped take care of the animals. Uh, the other was a truck driver who helped with picking up, loading, and delivering the feed. Um, so my mom developed an unhealthy relationship with the truck driver. 
Uh, they began to have an affair. Uh, some things are a little hazy. I was a kid, so I don't really recognize what was happening at the time. Um, I will say there were occasions when mom would lock us up at the store. Uh, she would, Sorry, she would lock up the store, and we would all go over to the truck driver's trailer house. Us kids would be told to go sit in a room by ourselves and watch TV for a while. Uh, during this time, uh, during this whole affair, uh, we discovered that the truck driver was a drug dealer. And I'm not sure that my mom ever did anything, um, but she was okay with the fact that he was a drug dealer and was involved in all that business. Um, later, after going over to his trailer and all that, uh, mom would drill us and have us repeat stories back to her of what we would tell dad if he asked about what we did that day. Uh, this went on for some, some time. Uh, I can't remember the exact ages I was in some places. There large chunks from this time period that have just kind of been blocked out of my mind. I think a lot of that has to do with some of the trauma that happens next. Uh, eventually, my dad found out. Um, I remember leading up to that, things around town kind of shifted. There is a very palpable change in the air. Uh, my sister and I would, you know, go around town and, and run errands, and we really built up a rapport with some of the people around town. And everyone was always friendly, nice big smiles, warm conversations. Then uh, suddenly people were really cold and standoffish, uh, even mean in some cases. Uh, I felt like a pariah at some times. And <laughs> not a parada, a pariah. I couldn't let it go. Um, but like I said, it was a small town, so, you know, word gets around. And I'm pretty sure that there were rumors going around about what my mom was up to. And eventually these rumors got back to my dad. Dad confronted the truck driver about what was going on. Then he told my mom that they weren't to see each other again. Uh, my mom really changed after that. It was as if something inside of her snapped. Uh, she became really cruel. Uh, she's verbally abusive, especially towards me. She would repeatedly tell me that I was worthless and unwanted. She threatened to send me to live with relatives and asked why she'd even bothered to keep me in the first place. Uh, and as a kid, uh, you know, my mom and I were really close. So hearing these things, I just, I bought into it. I believed it was the truth about who I was. Um, you know, I remember there was one really particular bad episode where, um, some of the horses got out of the fence and typically uh, it had been my job to mend the fences and take care of the horses, which is a lot to put on. Like, I think at this time I was about nine or 10 um, it's just a lot to put on a little kid, you know, go take care of this herd of horses. I mean, there were, there was like seven or eight horses, but for a little kid, that's a lot to handle. Um, anyway, I, I got on my bike after they got out this one time and I just went around the neighborhood and the surrounding woods trying to get them. Uh, I'd bridle a horse and bring it back home and it'd get out again. It took hours and hours and I was fed up eventually and came home and told my mom that I just couldn't do it. And she was mad. Like, she was mad at me because I, I was making her go out and do something, basically. She just screamed at me for, I think it was like another two hours when we went out and tried to get the horses and wrangle them back home. Um, and it just broke something inside of me. Uh, that was the, the first time I really recognized that something was broken inside of me and I remember that night, it was the first time I, I ever picked up a knife and actually contemplated hurting myself. Um, the pet store caught on fire one night. Uh, I was woken up early in the morning, and when they told me what had happened, I couldn't believe it was true. I didn't think it was real until we pulled into the parking lot, and I saw the, the just the black, hollowed-out carcass of the building. and I fell apart. I tried to run inside at one point, and they had to hold me back. Um, I just, I'd really loved and cared about those animals. Um, and my mom began to deteriorate, deteriorate more and more. Uh, she was obsessed with the truck driver. Uh, at this point he had moved on and was seeing someone else. Um, but for some reason my mom decided that she had to take revenge on him for that. And there were all these strange, elaborate schemes that she came up with to go after him. Uh, she had me write a fake letter once to the cops, tipping him off about the guy being a drug dealer. Um, actually had to go into the police station and deliver it one time. 
she wanted to sabotage his truck by pouring sugar in the gas tank. And uh, yeah, there were actually a few times it got dangerous. Uh, she sent me out with a video camera when she got wind of a drug deal um, that was going down in order to try and catch it on camera and to give it to the cops to get them caught. Um, on one such deal, I was hiding in the woods filming and uh, I stepped on a branch and it cracked really loudly. Um, and I got scared and immediately bolted, like tried to get away because I thought I was caught. And apparently I was because someone started shooting a gun in my direction. And nothing happened and I got away, but I got shot at, so that's fun. Um, there was one plot in particular that caused a lot of problems and really messed my, with my head. Uh, I have a hard time talking about it, and I've actually never shared it publicly. Um, but I'm going to try to give you guys the highlights because it just shows how crazy things had become. Um, like I said, I knew the woods that we lived in. I'd walked, biked, and built forts all up in those trees. Um, one day my mom told me to take her on a walk. She said specifically to show her a place where no one would be able to find her, like a spot no one would easily find if they were looking for someone missing. So I led her to a very secluded area we kids knew of um, that had a small pond nearby. There were no trails that led to it, no deer trails, no anything. It was surrounded by briars, uh, you know, like thorns. Um, then she let me in on her plan. She was going to get a small tent and some supplies, some supplies and hide out there in that spot for a few days. Then dad or one of, a, one of us kids would call the police and report her missing. I uh, was to come back and check on her after the police had left. Uh, after she'd be gone for after she'd been gone for a while, she was gonna stumble out of the woods and then go tell the police that the truck driver had come after her with a gun and she'd run and hid in the woods. Um, and she went through with this plan. Uh, the next night, Dad called the police. Um, I'll never forget our little little cabin washed in, in blue flashing lights all the animals huddled together in a stable terrified I sat in the police car with the cop and he talked me and he talked to me and tried to figure out what was going on uh, the next morning I went out to the tent where mom was supposed to be and she was gone I was freaked out um, I started to believe that the truck driver really had done something to her uh, I walked around the woods trying to find her for a while and couldn't figure anything out um, I can't remember exactly how everything played out after that. This is one of those areas where things get a little fuzzy. Um, I know mom was hiding in the crawl space beneath our house. Uh, my dad figured out what was going on. And when we found out, when we, when we found her, she was a mess, uh, covered in these huge cuts and half out of her mind. Uh, she ended up going to Moccasin Bend, which is a mental institution in Chattanooga, for a little while. Um, when she got back, well, when she got out, uh, things kind of went back to normal. And by normal, I mean the insane schemes to get the truck driver in trouble. Um, one day we were driving into town, and we could see this pillar of smoke rising up in the distance. Uh, someone's trailer had been set on fire. It was the truck driver's trailer. Uh, soon after that, mom woke us up in the middle of the night saying we had to go. I was confused and asked what was going on, but she insisted we needed to leave. Uh, she instructed my sister and I to pack up a couple of boxes of what we couldn't leave behind and some clothes and to get into the family van. Uh, we asked where dad was and if he was coming and she said not to worry about it. Uh, he would catch up with us. So we did. Uh, I must have been... 11 maybe 12 at that point I didn't know what else to do um, so we all got into the van and left uh, once we were quite a ways out of town mom explained what was going on the police had a warrant out for her arrest uh, they believed she was the one who had set the fire to the trailer and she insisted that she hadn't done it uh, we were going to drive out to Missouri and hide out with some distant relatives and dad would meet up with us after settling a few things at home. Uh, and we stayed with those relatives for a while and then dad caught up with us, uh, but then the relatives kicked us out and we had no place to live. We slept in hotels for a while, but we we're running out of money. Um, I remember one day in particular, we just stayed in a park all day because we didn't know what to do or where to go. 
I remember my dad showing me how to brush my teeth using a paper towel in the public restroom. Uh, we were basically homeless at that point. Uh, but finally, Dad got a job at a grocery store, and we got an apartment. Uh, it was winter, so there was a ton of snow. And then, when it was winter, there was a ton of snow. It was great. And then that spring, I taught myself how to skateboard. Um, I miss the woods and all of our animals, but I thought we were going to go home at some point. I did start to notice at this point that something had changed inside of myself. Uh, There's this deep self-hatred. I was just very depressed. Uh, one day I sat in a closet and cut my hand open with a piece of glass simply because I just wanted to hurt myself. Uh, There's one night I woke up with a, a start. There was this loud banging on our door. Um, I just sat straight up in bed, unsure of what was going on. Someone was shouting my mom's name. I cracked the I cracked the bedroom door open, and my dad was walking to the front door. He opened the door, and there was this flashlight shining in. Someone grabbed him and pulled him into the hallway. I ran and hid in the bathroom. Then um, they started calling out my sister's name, and then they called out my name. I had no idea what was going on or what I was supposed to do. Um, my heart was just pounding in my chest, but I walked out of the bathroom with my hands up because I just didn't know what else I was supposed to do. These huge guys in tactical gear with riot shields that read SWAT were standing in our living room. Uh, one guy grabbed me by the shoulder and forced me outside and made me sit down against a wall next to my sister. Uh, next thing I knew, they had my mom kick. They dragged my mom kicking and screaming out of the apartment. Um, they talked to Dad for a little while, and we all kind of sat around in shock. Shortly after that, uh, Dad explained to us that they'd come after Mom for the arson case. Uh, she'd been found guilty since she fled. Um, they'd set a bell for her. My sister and I gave our dad what little money we had gotten through, like, just odd jobs and chores and stuff. Um, and altogether, we had enough to make bail. So Dad went and got Mom and then made bail. And we left for Kentucky that night instead of, you know staying in town like you're supposed to. Uh, we lived in Kentucky for a few months. We stayed in the house of a friend, mom and maid, who bred rabbits. Um, we didn't stay there for too long, uh, a few months, if I remember correctly, and then we headed down to Florida. Um, we ended up in a rental house close to the beach outside of Panama City. We'd take walks along the beach almost every day. Um, it was a nice little break. Um, Dad got another job at another grocery store, uh, we called some relatives and let them know where we were and what was going on, what had happened. Um, and one day, Mom and I were coming home from buying groceries. We pulled into the driveway and were unloading the car when this white van came squealing down the road. Two huge guys in suits jumped out and grabbed my mom and threw her into the van and sped away. I thought we were under attack or something, so I grabbed a, a metal pipe and hid under the front porch until my dad came home and tried to find me. Uh, he set my sister and me down and explained that the guys were bounty hunters. They had caught up with us, and they were transferring Mom back to Tennessee, um, where they put her in a county jail outside of Tracy City. Uh, we you know, saved up some money for a little while and then eventually moved back to Chattanooga to live with, some, with my grandparents. Uh, Dad got my sister and I enrolled back into school. We'd been homeschooled, quote-unquote, since I was about in the fourth grade or so, which, if we're being honest, we didn't really get much schooling, and I was really worried about going back to school because I knew I was severely behind. Um, Dad also had us start going to church with my grandparents and our cousins, but I hated it. I Man, I did not want to be there. I already had a really difficult time communicating with people after so much time doing crazy things for my mom and being on the run from the police. To add to that, I wanted nothing to do with religion. I considered myself an atheist at this point. Uh, I didn't think a loving God who cared about people could exist, not after everything I'd seen and gone through. And eventually I just developed this line of thinking. I just told myself over and over again, I'm almost 18, I just need to make it through school, and then I'm out of here. I'll just buy a car and then drive out west or something. But I'm almost 18, and then I can, I can just leave. 
But there is this group of people who ended up becoming my friends at this youth group, and it was life-changing for me to have all these people who actually did seem to care about me. I think that's when things really started to feel like they were going to turn around. Um, so we're living with family, going to school, going to church for the first time in our lives, going to jail to see mom on the weekends. Uh, one day I was at school and my grandpa came and picked me up early. It was really weird. I wasn't sick. I didn't know he was coming and he didn't say anything on the way home. I had no idea what was going on. Uh, when we got home, we went into the living room and my dad and sister were on the couch crying and then my dad told me that my mom had committed suicide. A couple weeks later, I found myself in a bathroom holding a pocket knife to my wrist. I was screaming at myself in the mirror, saying how much I hated myself. I thought everything was my fault. Um, at one point, I ended up challenging God to do something. Uh, I kind of call that my first prayer. Um, I said that if he cared at all, and if he was really there, then he'd do something. In that moment, this sense of peace came over me. Uh, there was just something, not exactly like an audible voice, you know. It's just something in the back of my head, uh, like a feeling. I can't explain it. It was just weird. But it just told me to wait, to hold on. And I calmed down and I put the knife away. Um, so not, not long after that happened, um, the moment in the bathroom, I was sitting in the youth group, and one of the pastors got on stage. His name is Chuck. And he started telling us the gospel story. That that was it, just the gospel. And I'd never heard it before. Um, he explained how God was perfect and holy and had created this amazingly beautiful universe that we get to call home. And then he compared all these things like planets and stars to humans and how messed up we are. And he said, even though God has all of this wonder and beauty, the thing he wants most is us, the messed up humans. After that, he told us the story of a man from Jerusalem who lived a perfect life and was killed in a horrible, unimaginable way so that his life could be traded for ours. And then he defeated death and came back to life so that he could be united with us. My heart broke, um, and for the first time in my life, I felt wanted, I felt loved and valued. And that night, I, I prayed and surrendered my life to God. I chose to believe in who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. So, I mean, at that after that point, um, got super involved in the youth group. Um, there are so many people who poured into my life. Uh, Micah was one of them. Um, but there are all these small group leaders and pastors and worship leaders and just tons and tons of just friends who surrounded me and just loved on me and helped me to grow um, and just really bolstered me in my faith. Um, I eventually started serving in a lot of areas, uh, specifically in tech and media. Um, I really started getting into reading the Bible um, and figuring out what it meant to follow Jesus. Um, that was over a little over 10 years ago now. And, you know, since then, um, I've been to multiple countries to share the gospel. I've served in college ministry at my church and uh, up until I graduated from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Woo -woo, go Mox. Uh, it's just a huge deal because like going back to, I felt so un, uneducated going into high school and now I have a college degree. Um, and I've just spent a lot of time over the years cultivating healthy friendships and learning what that means, um, figuring out how that applies to loving others and sharing the love of God with them. Um, I will say my sophomore year of high school, I went on my first mission trip to Honduras. I've been three times since then. Um, but on that first trip, two huge things happened that radically changed my, my walk as a new believer and honestly kind of continue to shape how I view things now. Uh, at one point during the trip, I was asked by our student pastor to share my testimony at this church that literally met in a garbage dump. I never shared my story publicly. Um, I was actually a little ashamed of it, and I never shared most of it with anybody. Um, I shared some of the really big details with close friends in my life. Um, but nonetheless, I agreed to do it, and I stood up there the next day in front of a crowd of people having church surrounded by piles of garbage, 
and I told them my story. And I was still surprised by how many of those people related to what I had experienced. Um, Shortly after that, we went to a government-owned orphanage. Uh, Kids who were just left to fend for themselves on the streets lived there. I ended up in this back room where they kept what were called bed babies. Uh, These were infants whose moms had gone into the hospital to give birth, and before the baby was given back to them, they snuck out and abandoned the kid. Uh, I held this one little kid for a while, and when it was time to go, she just started crying. And one of the missionaries came in and told us that it was because these kids had never experienced love, and they just wanted to be held by someone. In that moment, I felt God speaking into my heart, telling me that I needed to share His love and hope with others, that I needed to share my story of pain in order to give others a chance to heal. So today, I'm I'm serving at the same church. Um, a couple of year go, years ago, we actually opened a satellite campus, and I signed up to be a leader in the student ministry there, alongside my then-girlfriend. Uh, it's been three years, and... Now that person is my wife, um, <laughs> and we're, we're just invested in leading there, um, not just as small group leaders, but in a lot of areas. Like I've been helping with the tech and media. Um, my wife helps lead worship on occasion. Um, we've both had opportunities to teach and speak for the students. Um, and, you know, that's just that's where I feel called and led to serve and do ministry the most is with students. Uh, I want to be there for for kids um, going through middle school and high school, um, just trying to struggle through and figure out what this whole life thing is, because I was their age when I came to faith, um, and I just I have a huge heart for them. Uh, outside of that, I'm just working full time and uh, trying to do projects like this podcast uh, so that we can help spread the gospel to people and whatever ways uh, my talents and abilities allow. Um, Like I said, happily married now. Uh, It's been about, what, four months? And we have a dog who (laughs) sometimes is more than we can handle. But that's, that's about what life's like right now. So... So, Kip, you talked about having quite a few pets. Yes. If you could have any pet, domestic or exotic right now, what would it be? What would you name it? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I I think having a a snowy owl named Hedwig would be, be up there. Can you have snowy owls as a pet? You can, in some places, you can have owls as pets, but it's highly frowned upon because they get really depressed, more so than some of your other exotic birds. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yep. The more you know. Or a lion. I'll name him Simba. What if it's a female lion? Why, it wouldn't have the mane. I, I want a lion for the cool mane. So while we're on the topic of your childhood, who was the most influential person for you as a kid? Um, Barring like celebrities or authors or anything, just real life people. Um, I'm going to say my papa, which is like my, my grandpa, my mom's side of the family. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he was a, he's a troubled guy. He had some issues, um, but he was just a really, really talented painter. And I grew up like learning how to uh, just be a really good, skilled sketch artist, which I still can do. Um, but having someone like him in kind of an area where the arts weren't really a thing, uh, being a creative person was kind of out of the question because you were just trying to survive every day. Um, it was just really influential for me. 
just to cover my papa's story a little bit real quick because i think it's cool um he for for our entire childhood he wasn't a believer and when i got into college he uh, developed lung cancer and i went and saw him at the hospital and shared my faith with him at one point to which he basically said i don't want anything to do with that and then some expletives um but then a year later uh, right before he died he got saved and baptized and that was really cool they actually like carried his wheelchair into the baptistry and dunked him um so that was just i don't know it was just really awesome what about now? Uh, so right now in this season, uh, I'm going to have to say this guy named Adam, who is the youth pastor at the uh, the, the church campus that, that me and my wife go to. Uh, he's just kind of taken me under his wing and been mentoring me and, and uh, discipling me and helping me become a better leader. You touched on the subject when you were on Letters from Home with Meg Gleesner. But could you explain kind of what the schooling situation was while your family was on the run? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll kind of tell you a little bit what I told her because it doesn't come up very frequently um, when you're just like telling people about your life. They don't think to ask like, oh, well, how was your schooling growing up? You just wouldn't think about it. Um, There's actually a, oh man, it, it was from like, when I was in the third grade, fourth grade, maybe until my freshman year of high school where we just were not in school. Um, and so we were, we were quote unquote homeschooled. And basically what that meant was, uh, our mom went out and got some textbooks and we just tried to study on our own and figure things out. So for me, like I had one math textbook from like the third grade until my freshman year of high school. So I had to teach myself how to do a lot of stuff. So of course, when I finally got back into a school uh, system, like actually went and sat in a classroom with a teacher and everything, I had no idea what was going on. I was extremely behind, um, quickly was failing out of every class and had to had to just figure things out and get caught up. Uh, it's a very difficult, difficult process. Um, which I, you know, I shared with Meg that because, you know, to go from someone who basically didn't have any school at all, like I, I should not have graduated high school. Um, that's just the reality. And I should not have graduated college. And, you know, as you know, Mike, I'm now in seminary pursuing a master's degree. All, all of these are things that like I, I should not have been able to do. I'm not a very smart person. And that's a lie, but, (laughs) um, but I, I, I was lacking in schooling for a long, long, long time. And, you know, I, I just would not have gotten to where I am now without the grace of God. Like I'm very humbled by it. Like I, I should not be in the position I'm in as far as my education is concerned. I understand that in, in a few different areas. But I think you hit it on the on the spot. That is the grace of God. You know, we can't do anything apart from Him, right? And so, um, yeah, you're not you're not stupid. Something that always keeps me humble. <laughs> always. Amen to that. During the time that your family was on the run, sounds like you dealt with a lot of isolation, uh, being cut off from friendships. You weren't in school. Just kind of separated from the rest of the world when things began to settle down was it difficult to adapt to that oh yeah 100 percent um like you knew me when we started to get things back in back in order so to speak and i was very very cut off like i didn't i didn't know how to make friends i didn't know how to talk to people um didn't know how to interact in social situations which I still sometimes don't know what to do. Say you were less awkward then, I feel like. <laughs> I'm a very socially awkward person. And that's because like I was cut off from everybody and everything for like five years. Um so yeah, there there was definitely a huge a huge um period of trying to adapt to things and figure out how to just engage with people. Well, I mean it's difficult if during 
such formative years when you're supposed to be learning how to be social and deal with people, you don't have that ability to. I can't imagine having overcome that. I've always been going and doing and being with people. And so for me, that's something just I've taken for granted. Um, did you ever attempt or consider running away? Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, this kind of falls into the same category, that last question. Like, I, I really, really thought about it a few times, even before we like went on the run from the law. And ultimately what kept me from doing it was just that I didn't know how to do anything. So like we, we were in a small rural town, so there, it wasn't like I could jump on a bus and go somewhere. Um, if I was going to go somewhere, I'd have to figure out how to drive a car, figure out how to steal the car, and then somehow get to where I was going and figure out how to like live somewhere. Um, so basically it all, it all, all boiled down to, I definitely considered it for a long time and it just didn't do it because I didn't know what to do. Um, and then another part of it was just like, you know, my little sister, I didn't want to leave her by herself. Um, so yeah, thought about it, didn't do it for a few reasons. What was the motive to even consider it? Just being tired of family, being tired of the circumstances, wanting independence. Yeah. I mean like, so just, this was the, this was around the, the time period where my mom started to get really verbally abusive and, you know, there's only oh so much that a person can take until they, until they break. And I just hit a point where I was like, I can't, I cannot handle this anymore. I'm losing my mind. Um, this, this parent is just awful to me all the time. I need to get out of here. Um, I feel neglected. No one's really taking care of us. I just think I could do a better job if I get out on my own. Um, so yeah, that's basically it. What kept you going through all that? Um, because I mean, it's, it may not be obvious yet but I mean knowing your story now it seems pretty obvious that you didn't have Christ in your life so what was that where'd you get sustenance from yeah uh, great question a couple of things like there were there were just like some some book series that I was reading um, one of them's called Animorphs that just like Sounds silly, but as a kid, it was like one of the only things that kept me going. And um, the biggest thing, though, was just I had this mindset of I'm going to get out of here. As soon as I turn 18, I'm going to get in a car. I'm going to drive away and I'm going to you know, make it make a good life for myself. I'm going to be, you know, more successful than than anyone in my family's been. I'm going to. um just just be a really good father, a great husband, uh, all these things. Basically, it was just this drive, and I didn't have words for it then, but now I would say I wanted to break the cycle. And, you know, back then, that was the only thing that really kept me going was this idea that at some point I'm going to get away from all of this and I'm going to have a better life. Um you know, now obviously I have a different reason for living, although that's still a big part of it. You know, now my sole purpose in life is not my sole purpose, but my biggest purpose in life is just to glorify God and to point people towards Jesus. Um, and you know, hopefully breaking the cycle adds to that as we go. I definitely think it does. So we just talked about how you didn't grow up in faith. What helped you to grow when you did find faith? It's hard without mm. having that family support. Yeah, th that was definitely a, a thing that was hard to get settled into because once I started going to church, there's, you know, I got put into my age group, small group in the youth group, you know, and all of those guys like knew each other really well. They'd like grown up with each other. Um, 
and I'll never forget, uh, there was, it was one of, it, it might've been my first Sunday in church, like in the youth group, but it might've been a couple of Sundays later. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, but the, the, the youth pastor, Randy go, um, started teaching out of the book of Jonah and he got up there and said, everybody turn to the book of Jonah. And I literally had this thought of, and of, of just panic where I was like, I only brought the Bible. I don't even, I didn't know there was another book I needed to bring. That's just like, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. And, you know, over time, like the, just the, the things that helped me grow the most were community, which is why I mentioned that, like, you know, all those guys were super close and eventually I got super close with a bunch of guys too. And like, like you, Michael, like you stepped in at, at a certain point, um, when I was a freshman and took me under your wing along with a bunch of other people. And if it hadn't been for the community that was at, at that church, I, I never would have figured anything out. Um, and the, the thing that built to where I am now is all of you guys stepped in and said, Hey, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to go and study your Bible every day. Um, literally just gave me like outlines on how to do that. Um, and then you just lived out as, as really good models for how to be a follower of Jesus. Like I watched you serve other people and realized, oh, this is how I need to serve other people. Um, and so that's, I think that's the biggest thing, just community. Um, and of course now it's totally different. Like now I'm just devouring the word every day and serving on a leadership team and all this other stuff. But it started with just having all those people come around me and say, I got you. Let me show you how it's done. So it's pretty clear that church community was pivotal in those early years. What does the church community specifically look like now? How is it different? Ooh, great question. Great question. Um, now it, now it is more like a family. Like, you know, my wife and I have just gotten into a, like a solid community where if we don't show up on a Sunday or a Wednesday night with our small group, people would text us and be like, Hey, where are you at? Are you okay? Um, you know, it's just like, there's this group of people who just literally care about us are, and are involved in our life and they want to see us succeed and they want to see us grow. Um, but more importantly, they just, they just care about us. And I think the, I think the way life in, in church for, for me now looks different from how it looked then is being a servant. Um, because back then I didn't have any way of investing in other people. I didn't have anything to pour out. I was not producing any fruit. Um, I needed people to like pour into me and invest in me because I was, I was brand spanking new, didn't know anything, didn't know how to do anything. Um, but now I'm, I'm taking an opportunity to step into the lives of students in our, our student ministry and say, Hey, I was exactly where you were when I was 14, 15 years old. Let me like show you kind of what the Bible says to get through this in ways that you can follow Jesus better. Um, so now it's more, more than just being surrounded by community, but adding to that community as well, like giving back. If that, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You're trying to do for others what was done for you. Um, knowing exactly you know, knowing what made the difference in your life and maybe adjusting it for the current generation. But yeah, absolutely. Paying it forward, if you will. Yeah. Um, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. You talked about how you grew up kind of with an atheistic belief. Um, so did you ever reconcile that with your current faith? What what was that process? Um, let me. I'm going to walk you through a really complicated answer for this. Oh goody! Oh goody! <laughs> um, no. So like, I I can't say like my my mom and dad like were atheists. They were basically agnostic. Um, I on my own had come to that viewpoint of I don't believe in a god. Um. And with that, I didn't, I didn't staunchly hold like any hardcore, like 
scientific reasonings for anything or anything like that. It was just as simple as I don't believe there's a God. And I think like people tend to have this view of atheists as like hardcore, like know everything there is to know about evolution and, and science and, and all these things. And I just, that's not always the case. Um, you know, in fact, I would, I would say there are probably more people who call themselves Christians that are actually active atheists as in like they go to church every Sunday or Wednesday because it's something that their family did or their family currently does, but they don't actually live out like they believe in God. Um, so for me, it was just simply a matter of switching gears and saying, well, I didn't believe in God and now I do believe in God. And, you know, were there some things that had to be reconciled? Um, for instance, I believed in evolution back then. Um, I held on to that for a long, long time. I think until maybe the middle of call, like when I was in college, um, I believed in like, uh, evolutionary creationism. Like I, I found ways to combine my faith and my old scientific views, if you will. Kind of fit your current beliefs into your, the box of your old beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. But then eventually that I had to get this point where I broke it down and said, you know what, if, if God can do this one thing supernaturally, uh, let's say raised from the dead, then what's to stop him from creating the earth in seven literal days. Um, and ultimately where I, where I've wound up is saying like, you know, you know, at the end of the day, the most important thing is what I believe about who Jesus is and what D Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection. And if I get to heaven and God says, eh, well, it wasn't a literal seven days, it's fine. That's not, the, that's not the point of everything. Um, but it, then again, if I do get to heaven and God's like, eh, it was a literal seven days, I'm like, okay, that's fine. It, it doesn't matter either way. Uh, the main thing is the main thing and that's Jesus. Um, but of course, like I said, like if you want to believe in God, then at some point you have to just believe in everything that he could possibly do because like you said in Matthew, all things are, are possible for him. So I think that's the hardest thing to do is to let go of our limited understanding and wanting to be able to control what we perceive as possible or real and just saying, God, you did what you did and how you did it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. He's he's a god of impossible things. So Absolutely. So you talked about your parents being more agnostic and clearly it's wasn't the picture perfect family life growing up. How do you think your past is going to affect your life now as a newlywed and your family life going forward? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, so where Aaron and I are one year in and some change, um, and you know, I'm already seeing some things in myself that are tendencies that have come out of my parents' marriage. Um, I'm not going to go super in detail to what those are right now. Um, but as soon as I've noticed them, I've, I've tried to like catch them and say, oh, all right, that's not, that's not healthy. That's what my parents did. I need to adjust that and change it. Um, so that's definitely a big part of it. Um, I think the other thing, the, the biggest thing is just, uh, re relying on our faith a little bit more. Um, well, entirely, I should say, uh, and saying, you know, I want to push and pull and point my wife towards God and not towards myself, um, and wake up every morning and say, it's not about what I want today. Um, you know, if she needs or wants something, then that needs to be a priority. Um, I need to put my own desires aside and put hers in front of mine and you know we don't we don't have kids we have a fur baby but <laughs> we don't have kids and kind of the same thing just recognizing when that happens that my my responsibility will be to point them to jesus 
first and foremost every day. And I think that ultimately is how that cycle is going to get broken. How, you know, my family has gone through divorce after divorce after divorce, um, multiple different types of abuse and neglect and all these things. And if I want to break that cycle, if I want to be the person who says it's done, it stops, then that starts with Jesus and choosing to love my wife and my hopeful eventual kids the way that he loves them. And again, just point them to him. And I think that's that's what's going to break the cycle. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded, I think it's in 1 Corinthians where it states... Um, Christ's power is made perfect in our weaknesses. And it's important that we're made aware of those so that we can surrender that and you stop trying to take control and start celebrating your weaknesses because it's an opportunity for Christ to be exalted and to display what he can do through us despite our imperfect nature. Yeah, I think that's a, a lesson I'm learning every day now is like admitting that I'm wrong sometimes or like admitting I'm, I messed up on something and just being humble and saying, I need, I need to fix this. I need to do better at this. I need to let God change this part of me. Um, and in order to become more like, like Jesus I'm right there with you. And it's not easy, but it's some of the most rewarding things to look back on. And I've not been married to Paige much longer than you have to your wife, but Looking back, even in the year that you guys have been married, I'm sure you can see where God has changed and grown and stretched and developed you and her separately, but also together. It's just it's really rewarding. Um, so I've got two questions left. They differ from each other, but let's see if I can work them into some sort of transition for you. What advice would you give to our listeners that may be struggling with depression? Um, definitely seek some help. Um, I think the, the best thing that you can do would be to go to counseling. Um, you know, just does it matter what kind of counseling? Uh, I guess it depends. Um, Aaron would be better to answer this, but, and hopefully I'm right. I get this answer right. Um, I think it depends on on what is triggering your depression. So if if it's something related to to grief and trauma, then you should, you should probably find a counselor who has a little bit more expertise with with grief and trauma. If it's just general depression, um, then you should probably be safe going to just about any counselor. Um, most almost all counselors actually. I'm pretty sure all counselors have some degree of training with depression because it's so rampant right now. Um, you know, gosh, I don't know the stats, but a majority of people have struggled with depression in some way, shape or form right now. So I'm sure every counselor has some sort of knowledge about how to handle it. So, um, I think just going to a counselor can be super beneficial but, you know, you might see a counselor once a week, more more likely once a month. And, you know, your depression's not going to just come up right then and there in that moment. So the thing that you really, really need to do is get some support. Um, talk to at least one, maybe hopefully more than one friend or family member who knows what's going on. And you trust them and you can go to them and say, hey, I'm, I'm having a really bad day. And they can just be there for you and let you let you talk through it. Um, because I, I've been there. The last thing you want right then is is advice. Um, all you really want is someone to listen. Um, so have those people in your life who you can just vent to and tell them, hey, I'm, I'm having a bad day. Um, I'm struggling with this right now. Uh, and then I'll give you two other pieces of advice. Uh, one other thing would be to do something that you're really passionate about. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be like 
I know people say exercise helps and it does help, but I think more importantly, it's, it's finding something that you, you live for, like you just love doing. So like, I love writing. And so if I'm having a bad day, it helps to just sit down at my laptop or with a piece of paper and a pen and just write stuff out. Um, so I don't know, it might be, might be different for all sorts of people out there. Maybe you just want to get on a bike and go for a bike ride or, um, you know, paint a painting or, or whatever it is, find something that you really love and just invest in that, in that moment when you're, when you're feeling depressed and that can, that can really help. Um, and of course the other thing is to get into the word. Oh man. I, every, every time I've, I've been depressed and opened up the Bible, especially the Psalms, it's helped out a lot. Um, I know that sounds kind of cliche and super churchy, but that really does help a lot because I mean, that's the word of God is God speaking directly to you. So in those moments, just just get your Bible out. I'll go ahead and add as uh, somebody who's been a friend to somebody who's dealt with depression and a sibling to someone who has dealt with depression. If somebody comes to you, as Kip said, don't try and fix their problems. I've made that mistake a few times. Be willing to listen. Let them know you're there. Ask, do you just need to, to talk? Do you want me to give you some ideas? Be honest and open and show them that you care actively rather than just trying to fix it for them. And absolutely don't tell them just to get over it. Um, a lot of people that deal with depression can't get over it. It's, it's a chemical imbalance a lot of the time. Sure, there's some situational depression, and it's a whole nother subject, but don't try to fix it. Just show them that you're there and be supportive. But the last question is, why do you think your story matters? Ooh, uh, okay, yeah, so what's been occurring to me lately is, I wish I had the reference in front of me. Um, there's a verse, I think it's from Isaiah. Um, so you make, you make beauty from ashes and for me, you know, my, my story shows that God, God can take just a huge mess, a, a, an absolute disaster and just make something really cool out of it. Um, you know, every time I, I tell my story, I try to, I try to picture somebody who's sitting there listening, you know, if, if it's a large crowd of people. Um, but I try to picture someone who's going through the same thing that I'm going through, um, who just feels totally lost and broken and has basically given up on everything. And I want to, I want to provide them hope. And ultimately the, the hope that I found was Jesus. And you know, that's, that's why all of our stories matter is, is because they're a doorway to the gospel. Like they're, they're a vehicle to deliver the gospel to people. Um, because ultimately, you know, my, 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 while my story is, is powerful, um, it's pointless if the gospel's not in it. There's, there's, no sense in me talking to anybody about anything that I've gone through without saying I'm literally alive today because of who Jesus is and what he did. And if I'm not using my story to share the gospel with someone else, then I'm wasting it. Um, you know, all of us have really amazing, powerful stories of things that God has done in our lives. Um, whether it's, it's something as dramatic as, as what I've been through or in a lot of cases, just like the the reliability and faithfulness of God, we all have this this story to tell that points to the cross, and that's something that we can't miss or neglect. So, as you are well aware, we ask all our guests this at the end of every episode. Do you have a verse for us? Yes, Romans eight fifteen. This resurrection life you received from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa?
thank you for listening to the Mountain and Valley Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating wherever you enjoy your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media. Just search for underscore MV Podcast on any platform. Again, that's underscore M as in Mountain, V as in Valley, Podcast. This podcast was created and produced by Kip Wilkinson and Michael Horvath. This episode was mixed and mastered by J.A. Parkey. Thank you so much for listening. Now go tell your story. We find it. I've made a rookie mistake. What do you mean Googling good life versus? What are you doing over there? <laughs> life versus about, geez. No, okay. Um, I was just kidding. I didn't expect you to actually be Googling over there. <laughs> I'm not Googling it. I kid. Okay. I should have had this prepared. I knew it was coming. You should. I, I should have known this. I'm literally a host on the show. Speaking of, Speaking of, if you're interested in being a co-host for Mountain Valley. <laughs> no!